139. I'm going to read from verse 13 through to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I want to start um, this morning's talk with a little confession. I really love really trashy TV. I'm sure I'm on my own, because you guys are all stand-up people. Um, but my favorite of all trashy TVs is The Only Way is Essex. I know. I know. You're never going to be able to look at me in the same way. I know, I know. Um, but if you haven't watched it, which I'm sure most of you haven't, um, it's about a group of 20 and 30-somethings who live in Essex. And the only way to describe what happens is there is just so much drama. Like, there's drama like you would not believe. Basically, people watch it, I think, to make them go, oh, my life's pretty normal and straightforward. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I go through phases of binge watching this, basically. So there's like 30,000 seasons. I think I'm on season 18. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I go through phases of binge watching. And there comes a point when I know deep down that it's time to stop. It's time to take a break. Because what happens is, my southern accent takes a slight shift towards the Essex. And um, I start looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, gosh, you're pasty. Maybe you should um, get a fake tan. I don't know. Maybe some lip fillers. I don't know. And things like this. These are the sort of thoughts that I start to have. And I love the sun. I love sunbathing. But if you know anything about me, you'll know that fake tan's really not my, my vibe. And so this is what happens, though. The story you live in is the story that you live out. We've talked a lot about this throughout our growth thing. If you feed yourself, if I feed myself with the story of The Only Way is Essex, ultimately, it's going to end in a fake town. So, you know, it's not me. It's not who I'm meant to be. It's not who I'm called to be. The story you live in is the story you live out. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the importance of knowing your identity, knowing who you are in Jesus, so that you can fully live in the story that he has written for you. When Cohen, my oldest son, he's 14? Is he 14? I should know that, shouldn't I? I think he's 14. He's 14. He, uh, so when he wants to go out with his friends, I, I really struggle. I become the type of parent that I never thought I'd be. And deep down, I'm like on a whisker away from having some sort of nervous breakdown. I know what teenagers do. I was a teenager. I know what they get up to. I know what they do. And I'm just freaking out. Every time he says to me, oh, I'm just, just chilling in the park. I'm like, are you though? Is that what teenagers do? I don't think they do. Um, and so what I say to him is this. I say to him, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Because if nothing else, if he can remember who he is and who we've raised him to be, and he remembers who he belongs to, us, God, he's going to do okay, right? He's going to do okay, isn't he? He's going to do okay. He's going to do okay. Okay. Um, but, you know, there's so many competing stories when we go out with our friends at, as teenagers or as we become older and we're in the workplace or wherever. There's so many competing stories that are going to try and drag us away and cause us to forget who we are and whose we are. So it is said that comparison is the thief of joy. Now, this morning, I want to propose to you that 
comparison can completely rob you of your identity if you let it. The story of the prodigal son is one I'm sure most of us are fairly familiar with, um, but here's a whistle-stop tour. There's two sons and a dad, two sons. The younger son goes to his dad and says, like, hey, I want my inheritance now. And his dad very graciously says, okay, cool, here's your inheritance. Do what you will with it. And he takes it and he, he, lives, he lives life. He off, off he goes and he squanders all of it. He just wastes it all on just having the best time, apparently. Um, but when he's reached rock bottom, he's spent all his money, all of the people that were his friends when he had loads of cash and no longer wanting to be with his friends. And he's living amongst the pigs. He realizes, actually, he could just have a better life if he just went and was a servant for his dad. So he prepares this big, forgive, um, this big speech about asking for forgiveness. And before he even gets to open his mouth, his dad has his arms wide open and welcomes him in. And his dad puts his best robe on him, a ring on his finger, and kills the fattened calf for him, which I researched, and apparently that is a big deal. So you have a fattened calf and you save it for like the specialist, specialist? Specialist of occasions, the most special of occasions. Um, so this is like a huge thing. So this calf would have been getting fatter and fatter and fatter for such a time as this um, to celebrate his homecoming. And so that's the story of the prodigal son. That's usually where we get to. That's where we read to. It's a lovely, happy ending for everyone. Focuses on the dad welcoming us home, and it's great. But there's another brother, the older brother, who was faithful. He was obedient to his dad, and he, he worked really hard for his dad. And he was really not happy about this situation. He felt taken for granted and cheated. But the thing that really strikes me the most about this passage is that that older brother was, was happy doing his thing and with the choices that he made. He was really happy with the life that he had until he looked over and felt like his brother was getting something extra. He felt like he wasn't getting enough money now. He wasn't getting enough recognition, enough status. He wasn't valued enough. And in Luke 15, it tells us that the older brother's response to his younger brother's treatment is this. The older brother says, uh, the older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, I love that he says that. He doesn't say my brother, he says this son of yours. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. But comparison is always, always shows us a skewed reality. Often it only highlights the things that we feel like we're missing or we're lacking in. And ultimately the older brother was saying to his dad, you don't love me as much. How can you love me as much? Because look what you've done for him compared to what you did for me. And I know a little bit about that feeling. This is gonna be, why are you laughing already? That's my husband <laughs> laughing. <laughs> okay. So I grew up as the middle child between two brothers. My older brother's just two years older than me. My younger brother is eight years younger than me. And one Christmas, my older brother and I really wanted ghetto blasters, right? Does everyone know what a ghetto blaster is? Thank you, Daryl. I know I'm old, but you know, I can already see Molly Palmer listening to this in the week, tittering away because I'm showing my age. Anyway, a ghetto blaster, for those who don't know, is a portable music player. In this case, a portable cassette player. There it is. Great. So 
I opened mine first, and I'm buzzing. I mean, look at it, right? This was the actual one I got. I found it on the internet. Although I did find it on the internet labeled vintage, which I thought was a bit rude. But okay, so this is it. Look at it, right? Single cassette player. Had to explain to Molly what a cassette player was this morning, which is a bit embarrassing. Single cassette player, FM radio. Look at the size of that aerial at the back, guys. Multicolored speakers. I mean, does it get any better? This is literally, I was buzzing. This is from Boots, by the way. This is when Boots used to make stereos, I guess. Um, it also had a strap, so you could carry it around should you want to. It was amazing, and I was buzzing. This is like the best Christmas ever, until my older brother opens his. His is black. It doesn't get any cooler than black. I don't think so. It was a double tape deck, I think, which, yeah, I mean, I'm sure my mum and dad would say, they cost the same, but whatever. Anyway, so I, suddenly, I'm looking at my loser tape player and wondering why my parents loved him more. I was like, stupid colored speakers and like, oh, look at it, rubbish. Um, but this is what happens, isn't it? And then, and then, my little brother, who's like 18 months old at this point, opens his. His has got a microphone, <laughs> right? A microphone with like a stretchy cable, the handle's built in, so he literally swung it around all day, singing at the top of his voice. I was fuming. But like the older brother, I was really happy until I looked at what other people were getting, and then all of a sudden, everything I've got looks like rubbish. And then comparison tells me, not only is yours rubbish, there's nothing good about it, and your parents definitely love your brothers more. I felt like not only do my parents love my brothers more, but it's like they're going out of their way to tell me that they love me less by giving me such an inferior present. And this is what comparison does. It skews your reality, and it's so easy to get derailed by looking at someone else's story. Comparison tells you you're missing out, and all you see is what you don't have. So comparison leads you to forget or unsee what God has given you, what gifts he's blessed you with, and how he's provided. When we forget who we are because we're so busy looking at the next person, it's really easy to feel unloved or unlovable. And that to be lovable, we have to be like this person or that person because they're getting loved and it must be down to what they're doing or who they are. When we forget our identity as loved children of God, our choices and decision-making can so easily become all about receiving acceptance because that's how the world tells us that we find love. So as a teenager, I made some incredibly, I'm going to go with questionable choices. Um, I was desperate to be accepted and valued. I chose to do things that everyone else was doing, but things that were not good for me or for other people. I lied, I was selfish, and I was irresponsible. Hence why I freak out when Cohen says he's going to the park, right? I, well, actually, this is really going to nail it home for you. At 13, I smoked my first cigarette. I smoked my first drug-filled joint. At 14, I got so drunk that I would lie in the street or wade into the sea at 15, which now, as a parent, I'm like, but as a teenager, you're just like, well, what's, gonna, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? Who cares? I don't want to say no because I don't want people to think badly of me. I don't want to stand up for what I believe in because I don't want people to reject me. I made bad choices around relationships because who says no to being loved, right? Why would you say no? I confused acceptance with love. And that's not, that's not at all what... 
Jesus has for us. Acceptance can equate to love when the love leads to acceptance, when that love is unconditional and you're accepted as you are. But when it's the other way around, when you're only loved if you're accepted and you're only accepted if you're doing what people want you to do, then it's a far cry from what love is. Luke 22 tells us of when Peter denied Jesus, which is a classic example of making a really bad choice so as to not be rejected by the people around you. In verse 54, it says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter wept bitterly when he realized what he'd done, when that shame hit him. And when we, when we forget who we are and we make bad choices, inevitably, it leads to shame. Another one of my favorite TV shows is Gavin and Stacey. Any Gavin and Stacey fans in the house? Yes. Um, I love it. But for those of you who don't know, there is a character called Pam. And in a moment of panic, in one of the very first episodes, she... She kind of blurts out that she's a vegetarian. And then for the next two seasons, she has to keep this lie going. And, you know, she's, she's hiding it from everyone. She's eating cheeseburgers in the car wash. So she's swapping out regular sausages with the Linda McCartney box. Stuffing ham in her mouth and she thinks no one is in. And one day, she gets busted by Stacy, and she says that her response, ham-filled mouth, is... Don't look at me, I'm disgusting. (laughs) And isn't this what shame is? Shame causes us to turn away from people, from relationships, and to keep things really hidden and in the secret. Shame is defined as a painful feeling, painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. The guilt that I felt for lying to my parents or hurting people around me from the choices that I made led to such shame. I felt like a rubbish excuse for a human being. And this led to withdrawing from like honest relationships in a lot of ways, being closed and guarded, keeping everybody at arm's length um, and taking out self-loathing on myself in ways that actually just bring on more shame. The only way to get rid of shame is to bring it into the light and before Jesus. If we forget who we are, and allow ourselves to live in that story of shame, we become isolated, detached, and alone because the story of shame tells us that we won't be accepted if people really knew what we were like. And the enemy loves nothing more than to keep us on our own and isolated and detached. But through the blood of Jesus, this is the bit, guys, this is the bit to take home. Through the blood of Jesus, he removes our sins from us. In Romans 5.8, it says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus doesn't want us to live in that story of shame. He died so that we could be free from sin and shame. But he died whilst we were still sinning. 
It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're going to do or what you are doing. Jesus still dies for you. He still died for you in spite of all that sin. He loves us in spite of that sin. So how do we live in the story that God has written for us? How do we make sure that we're living in his truth about who we are? And I think when I was trying to unpack this, the thing that I realized is that we have to make a choice. We have to choose to live in his story because if you don't make a choice, the world is screaming its story at you and it will always overpower. So if you don't make a choice, you are making a choice to live in the world's story. So make a choice today. Choose to live in the story of God. And the way that we can do this is by recognizing So identify a lie that you believe about yourself that isn't of God, something that is not God's truth for you. And repent, which means to do a whole 180, to turn right around, to not right around, you know what I mean, right around, just to there, um, to change your mind. Choose not to believe that lie anymore. To receive, you've got to receive his forgiveness. You don't have to work hard for it. You have to ask for it and you have to open your heart, but that's it. You've, got, you've just got to receive it. Um, and replace. Replace the lie that you've believed with the story that God has written for you, with his truth. You are intentionally and carefully made in his image. We read at the beginning, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And I just love the wording, you are intentionally and carefully made in his image. You are loved, valued, and made righteous by his blood. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel like you're sat here by accident, whether you were born as an accident or whether you've made it in this building by accident, you're not. There's no accidents. No, there was no surprise to God. God never went, oh my gosh, someone's got pregnant. I don't know what to do with this. He knew. He had it planned out for you. There are no accidents. You are intentionally and carefully made in his image. Amen.